1: So I feel like we should ask as a full disclosure question, is anyone in this room going to be contributing to the Mike Flynn Legal Defense Fund?
2: No, I mean, it really does pull at the heartstrings, the the cause of Michael Flynn. Um, the best, though, tweet that's come out of the Michael T. Flynn Legal Defense Fund is uh, NYC Southpaw, who, who called it the Flynnicence Project, <laughs> which <laughs> is excellent. I think we have to admire the entrepreneurial
0: spirit of this man. Yeah.
2: But if any of us donated, no one would know because donors (laughs) won't be discussed publicly.
3: Yeah. Well, maybe we should donate, uh, uh, you know, like $27 to just pull a number out of the air just so that we can say we donated. And get regular updates. Yeah. What If you you donate like at a certain
1: level, like like the Silver Circle, could you get to like name the
3: fund? I or if it, you donate, serve in on the honor. grand jury. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, if you donate at a certain level, you get you know meetings with Sergei Kislyak, uh, and you get a,
0: and a nuclear power plant. You contract. get a
3: nuclear yeah, power yeah. plant contract, exactly. and you get a special relationship with the Erdogan government. <laughs> okay. um,
0: There's a disincentive.
1: The Eagle Package. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the age of flintessence edition. I'm Shane Harris, totally guilty reporter. No flintessence <laughs> for me.
2: I would like to say that I've always believed Michael Flynn. Have you? <laughs> you can just tell. I mean, he's kind when of just, just told you eyes, what he's all about, hasn't yeah. he? He's just an honest, upstanding man who bleeds red, white, and blue. There's not a lot of In subtlety. the words of his brother.
3: I, I... Especially I, red. <laughs> no, I think... I think Mike Flynn is going to come through this vindicated. Uh, he represents uh, a, a true make America great patriotism. And uh, and I think we should all pony up for the Flynn Legal Defense Fund uh, in support of a great American.
0: I, I think what I will confidently predict is that he will end up with a great book deal. And when he goes on his great book tour – no one will say that he should shut up and go away.
1: Yeah, that's all going to try. All for my fun. We'll be talking about him on the podcast this week. First up, Robert Mueller serves warrants in the Russia investigation. Plot thickens. Donald Trump makes his first appearance before the U.N. General Assembly. And General Flynn's work in a private nuclear energy deal raises new questions about conflict of interest in the Trump administration. Just when you thought you'd run out of questions. There are some <laughs> new
0: ones. We're never going to run out of questions Even about more. conflict of There's a whole
1: new deck of them. Um, let's start with uh, kind of a, a wrap up of news on the Russia investigation front. Uh, A lot of stories uh, out in the past week. Uh, We wrote in the Wall Street Journal uh, that Mueller's team had served Facebook with a warrant uh, for information related to these ads that the Russian troll farm purchased. And apparently this is more information than Congress actually got. Uh, There was a story in the New York Times, a very dramatic kind of scene setter of federal agents picking the lock on Paul Manafort's house and raiding his house while he was asleep. Uh, there was the story of, what am I missing? Uh,
2: the CNN-FISA warrant. Oh, the story. CNN, of course.
1: The Manafort was also twice, twice under a FISA warrant. I can't think of anybody I know who has twice been under a FISA warrant.
2: Do you know people who have been once under a FISA warrant? I mean, I know
1: of them. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm just saying. I know of them, That's too. a special <laughs> achievement, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then sort of related to that, we also reported in the journal today that um, Mueller has interviewed Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, who, of course, is overseeing the Russia- so let's just start with I mean maybe with the, the, the warrants Ben talk about briefly just the significance of what we can in, or maybe what we can infer from the fact that the Mueller investigation is at the point where he is using this powerful tool to obtain information
3: Well so I think there's three there's three facts that give rise to different inferences and uh, the first is that he uh, served a warrant on Facebook. And uh, that – about these ads. Uh, And that means uh, that there is probable cause to believe uh, to the satisfaction of a judge that there is some criminal activity contained in – evidence of criminal activity contained in information uh, uh, associated with the accounts that are being uh, 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 – with the warrant deals with. Uh, that is probably unrelated to, but maybe related to, a second set, which is that he had enough information about Manafort and about evidence that was in Manafort's house or residence to serve a warrant uh, and uh, there. So I think you can infer from that that there is probable cause of criminal activity uh, associated with uh, Manafort's residence.
0: And, uh, and and the no-knock thing? And that's the third point, okay.
3: that not only was there a probable cause of that activity, uh, of, of evidence of a crime there, but that uh, there was reason to believe that you could not obtain it by, not merely by subpoena, but by a regular old knock-and-notice warrant, uh, which might give somebody time, for example, to destroy evidence or to uh, you know, to uh, hide stuff. Uh, and so it's like the
1: scene from the movie where they're dumping the cocaine down the toilet. Exactly.
3: Right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I open think, up,
1: Mr. Mana for
3: just one second. I, I mean, I think that that's in some ways the most suggestive yeah. fact that, that you have a situation there where the uh, Mueller staff took this extremely aggressive step and got a judge to sign off on it. And that suggests either that they are out-of-control, uh, crazed prosecutorial animals, which we have some reason to believe they are not based on you know reputation, prior professional history. I haven't uh, seen
0: any of them drooling in public. Uh, so.
3: Exactly. Or that Lately. there is something very substantial about Paul Manafort and his behavior that we don't know.
0: So uh, can I ask, just in terms of how do these puzzle pieces fit together kind of way, We now know Paul Manafort was under a FISA warrant both before he joined the Trump campaign and for some period after, while he was on the Trump campaign and after he left. Well, after
1: he left. It appears that it didn't get triggered until after he left. Okay. We think. Yeah.
0: We think. Um, There are reports around that captured conversations may include conversations with our now president. Um, We have this very, very aggressive. Uh, approach to gathering evidence from him and his and and uh, his documents so clearly the prosecutors think this is a bad
3: dude um, i think the technical term is bad ombre.
0: he's a bad hombre and uh and and they're like honing in on him and is the idea there that they put him under a ton of pressure and they get him to flip or is the idea there that, you know, this is the center, if there is some kind of collusion, or even if there's not, that Paul Manafort is what ties together Russia and our elections.
2: I don't know that it has to be an either or, right? So clearly, I think it's pretty clear that they think the um, the most easily provable criminal charges appear to be Paul Manafort, right? We've talked about this in the past that you sort of, you do the easy stuff first and whether or not that leads to you know, low-hanging fruit in terms of who you're going to prosecute or whether or not it, you know, it, it incentivizes people to cooperate. I actually, you know, like I, I read things like the, the no-knock warrant more in the, not that the Mueller's team is crazed and, and being like outrageously aggressive, but that that is sort of that aggressive messaging trying Trying to rattle him, you know, trying to trying to incentivize, you know, cooperation or or maybe incentivize cooperation among the many other, you know, sort of actors in this, in this grand drama. Um, yeah, I mean, so I have actually sort of something I've been mulling over, and I think this is really a question for Shane. And that's you know, so just going through the stories that we've talked about today, right? So we talked about okay, there's uh, Mueller served served Facebook a warrant. There's uh, there's the FISA CNN's report on FISA, and then there's the New York Times report that um uh Muller has been informed or i'm sorry Manafort has been informed that he's the target or th- that he's going to be indicted. I believe that last one was later has was later confirmed by CNN, but the other two stories, particularly the two FISA one, I think is still only one media organization has confirmed it. Actually, it strikes me as interesting. There are quite a few of the of the pieces in this Russia investigation where you have one big credible news outlet with multiple sources saying something that feels like a big piece of the puzzle. Ordinarily, then you have sort of a rapid fire, other yeah. organizations confirming. For you as a journalist, like, how do you think about okay, the one outlet that's credible and you trust has reported something. You can't confirm it or nobody else confirms it. Like, do you then put it in a box and kind of put it to the side? Do you say, okay, well, they must have really good sources? Like, how should we be thinking about those stories?
1: It's a good question, and and, and not just for the sort of narrow interest of journalists who are always trying to match, as it's called, you know, another outlet when when somebody has a scoop. Um, I think for us, there's, you know— we have been reporting on these issues and will continue trying to confirm whether there was, in fact, a warrant on Paul Manafort. But I think that generally, you know, journalists view CNN as a credible organization. It has had a consistent record. I'm not perfect, but no one's perfect. Um, and, you know, from our perspective at the Journal, I mean, we would not report it in our pages unless we could confirm it independently or unless there was a strong desire to report it and attribute it to CNN, if we felt that was appropriate. But what's been interesting, you know, you're putting your finger on something, is you're not seeing as much of the matching mm-hmm. going on. Um, where what is your be,
2: explanation for that? Right. I, I don't mean, you guys really are know. All chasing, yeah. This threat. I don't
1: know because I haven't really talked about it with other colleagues, or organizations. But it was much more pronounced in the early days of it. And my best guess is that newsrooms have either overtly or just sort of, you know, over time and made the decision we're not going to spend all of our time and resources trying to match everyone else's stories Mm -hmm. because we have too many other things that we need to chase. And that these are, a lot of these are incremental advances and that news organizations, I know for us, you know, we've made a, I think pretty concerted effort to focus our resources on enterprise reporting and on original investigations. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that like you won't, if something is just huge and pivotal, won't try to confirm it. In many cases, we do. I think in the case of this particular issue of the warrant on Paul Manafort, it's the kind of thing where you'll work to try to confirm it while you're doing other things. But you're right, there has not been this rush for news organizations to match every single incremental advance, in part because there are just so many of them. Like, if you miss this one, you're going to get an at-bat next but, round. But
3: I have another question about that CNN story because I'm... You know, CBS actually did seem to confirm a piece <clears> of <throat> it, uh, as in that there was a FISA warrant at some point about yeah. Manafort. Right. Um, But I was troubled by the sourcing of that story, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, As vague as I have ever seen in a story that high impact. Uh, The story refers to sources and at one point suggests there are three of them. Um, but it doesn't say anything more about about the sources. Uh, And they
2: briefed briefed on the investigation
3: at one point. It describes one source as briefed on the investigation, which has a vaguely congressional feel to it. To me, it has – but it basically just says sources say over and over again. And my question is what would be the Wall Street Journal's rules if – you came in mm-hmm. with a story that explosive and say, I, I've got three sources and we can't say anything to describe them. How much could you get away with in the journal's world f- with something like that? It's a
1: good question. For starters, you would have to demonstrate to the responsible editors. Right. Who internally, are pe- you'd have right? To internally, show. you'd have to demonstrate who these people are and give you know some. Measure of high confidence of why you think they're even in a position to know this, and that, and that's that's routine. Um. It's a good question what would we what would we settle for as sort of the bare minimum? I've never confronted that because we've always tried to go more with the more descriptive attribution. Um, the one that readers seem to hate and I, well, at least when I hear from them is sources familiar with the matter. but that is sometimes the best that we can do. Um, but I think we would certainly push for whether this was US officials or people briefed. I mean I it's a good question, but we would in fact wrestle with that. We would not simply you would not get away at the journal just saying sources that would never fly. Can so,
0: I ask you Ben? I you know, we talked before. Unless there were a
1: really good reason. I'm just going to say okay.
0: Unless <laughs> like the information is just so I mean
1: unless there were just or such a compelling reason. You can to
2: only do it. like you cannot describe me at all. You can you can even You would have to be source. a
1: really compelling reason and it would go to our standards editors and it would be uh-huh, debated.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, I mean, we've talked before and and you wrote recently, Ben, about sourcing for these stories and and how unleaky the Mueller team has been. Um, With some of these more recent stories, it's raised questions about whether there's information now leaking out from the Mueller team. So I love your thoughts on that.
3: So I don't believe this is a Mueller leak. And uh, for the following very simple reason, I've seen no evidence of Mueller leaks in the past. And I can't imagine that the first leak out of the Mueller investigation is going to be one that is obviously a felony. Yeah, it would Um, sink the investigation. Like, like, you know, disclosing a FISA matter is is a very serious thing, is an egregious civil liberties violation to name the target of a FISA uh, warrant. And that – the, the first thing everyone's going to think when they see a CNN story that say sources say there's a visa warrant against Manafort is that it came from Mueller's people. And so, you know, I think it's a terrible day for Mueller when that ran. And I can't imagine it came from them. It seems to me much more likely to be either a congressional or a kind of White House sort of disclosure. Um, and
0: not – someone in the intelligence community who would have information about FISA wiretaps?
2: I mean, the thing to to keep in mind, I mean, look, whenever you talk about the intelligence community with knowledge of FISA wiretaps, that's a very small group of people. You're right. talking about, you know, a handful of people at MSA and a handful of people at the Department of Justice. So, like, this is, it's not as though, like, a, though a big, giant group of people in the IC all know this and, and like, who's going to share it. I, I mean, this is clearly not Mueller's warrants, right? These are um, warrants, one, the first one was sort of related to Manafort for its activity in, in Ukraine um, and so this ran from 2014 yeah. to 2016 so that, that must mean that they re-upped the warrant periodically over time um, and then and then reportedly did, couldn't re-up it or, or didn't elected not to re-up it for lack of evidence at the end um, terminates before the campaign then the actual you know he serves the Trump campaign and then at some point late last year there's a new warrant um, that apparently or sort of reportedly resolves at some point early this year so we're talking about a period of time that all predates Mueller and his team um, so obviously there's there's lots of significance to like how what Paul Manafort is doing that makes him makes there be probable cause that he's agent of a foreign power in multiple different circumstances mm-hmm. where it's pretty clear the foreign power in question would be the same uh, group of actors but I don't know. The, the information here actually doesn't really strike me as sort of Mueller investigative information. It's more like the stuff that would have been collected way back when that he's now coming back to review. So I just I, I don't see it as sort of like very, very closely tied to his team. But Although
3: it's presumably material that may be at issue in his investigation sure. now. Um, look.
1: And you can I, use FISA material to obtain a criminal warrant. Right.
3: FISA has been around a long time. We have a lot of experience with the IC's implementation of FISA, uh, and over the uh, thirty-plus years of the history of, of FISA and warrants, uh, there is not really a, any substantial history of uh, of the IC leaking that stuff. And so, I think the 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 bar from for me uh, to believe that these are uh, malicious IC leaks is pretty high. I would actually want to see some evidence of that. Uh, On the other hand, do we know absolutely that uh, the Hill sometimes leaks stuff? Uh, Yeah. And do we know absolutely that this White House is a uh, viper's nest of people who hate each other and who uh, uh, all have in their mental Rolodexes the uh, cell phone numbers of a lot of reporters yeah
0: and I'm so I'm, I'm i have to note for our wonderful listeners that shane is sitting here <laughs> smiling and nodding enthusiastically shane
3: doesn't know nothing about nobody he's <laughs> um, never talked all these to things anybody that ben says are very interesting and <laughs> so i always. just think if you're asking what the balance of probability is yeah. a muller leak seems very <clears> low <throat> to me yeah a court leak, which, of course, is the other possibility, the the FISA court itself, that's unthinkable to me. And the working deep state IC people strike me as uh, pretty unlikely, uh, and and I have two potential candidates that strike me as dramatically more likely. And that said, I think CNN, unless, as Shane describes, there was some... uh, really, really compelling reason uh, to do it this way. I think CNN did a little bit of a disservice by reporting a story this explosive without giving you some indication of what sort of people they're talking to.
1: Okay. Donald Trump to UNGA. (laughs) UNGA. (laughs) Unga, The
3: man from UNGA. The man from UNGA.
1: (laughs) Trump made his first appearance before the UN General Assembly in New York uh, this week, his hometown. Um, I don't know that it was, it was, it was an entirely unexpected speech. Uh, I think Mark Landler from the times put it very well where he said, it seems like he made good on the advance notices of what this speech seemed like it was going to be. Um, but just some highlights, um, uh, talking about North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un as rocket man, uh, which seemed a bit more of a line for a stump speech than a UN speech talking about totally destroying North Korea. The Iran plan is an embarrassment. Um, and then spending the first section of the speech actually trumpeting, you know, how great the stock market is doing and how many Americans are employed. So kind of a domestic policy speech. So Tamara, set the scene for us. I mean, how uh, divergent <laughs> was this speech, A, from previous speeches, and, and B, because I think we know <laughs> the answer to what A is, um, how significant is that? Why does that matter? I mean, is this sort of a pearl-clutching kind of moment and people are just sort of put off by – this trumpian speech or is there something really significant about the fact that he gave this kind of speech
0: well you know I I think there are two things to to talk about one is the very blustering language about North Korea and Iran and what is that signal I think anyone who was surprised by that rhetoric has not been reading the news for the last couple of weeks um, the administration is clearly signaling that they are ready to Uh, Toss the Iran deal aside Now whether they're serious about that Or whether they're trying to coax The other um, permanent Five members of the Security Council In Germany who are the other Western partners in the talks To to try and wring more concessions out of Iran I don't know Um, But but it is certainly the interaction between the diplomacy over the Iran deal and the diplomacy over North Korea is very, very troubling because the more Trump signals that he might be willing to dump the this carefully negotiated nuclear deal with Iran, the less incentive there is for North Korea to engage in any talks over its nuclear program. Now you know, the Trump folks might say, well, there's no indication that they're interested in talking anyway. So who cares? And, and that's actually a fair point. But so that's one set of issues. Um, I actually thought that what was interesting about the speech is that normally, a lot of world leaders come to the UN General Assembly and give a speech that is directed at their domestic publics, because it's their guaranteed time in the spotlight, right? And they get to come to New York, look really high profile on the world stage and speak to their domestic politics. Um, Usually the U.S. president isn't doing that. He's going to the U.N. and actually talking to the other members of the U.N. and sending a signal in terms of American foreign policy. And so what was striking about Trump's appearance at UNGA is that he didn't do what American presidents usually do. He did what presidents of little countries usually do hmm. at the UN. It was a domestic politics speech. It was directed at, you know, the same people that he was talking to during the campaign, he was talking to um, in this speech, talking about national sovereignty, talking about jobs coming back and the stock market. And, you know, and and um, and so I really think that we need to understand it in that context. That said... He was at Unga, and the rest of the world is listening. They're used to coming there and and hearing signals from the American president. And the signal that he sent to them, I think, was extremely troubling. Um, he's basically saying that, yeah, as a as an international community, we face common problems, terrorism, disease, etc. The way to fight those problems is through national sovereignty. I'm America first. You guys should all do, You guys first, and transactionally, we can solve these problems together, which is kind of loopy, um, because if transactional politics were enough, we wouldn't need a UN. Uh, I think if you are a European country inundated by migrant flows, national sovereignty is not something that means a lot to mm-hmm. you right now. And someone telling you strengthen your national sovereignty is someone who really doesn't understand what you're dealing with. If you are the Jordanians looking at you know, ISIS trying to penetrate your territory and you've been inundated with Syrian refugees, national sovereignty does not mean a lot to you. If you're a West African country that's been dealing with Ebola, national sovereignty does not mean a lot to you. So I think the message that the rest of the world heard from the American president is
2: I don't really understand your problems, and frankly, I don't really care. Can I ask, sort of, so you know, one thing that usually happens after the president gives a, a UN speech is, an, an American president gives a UN speech is like a very, very car- careful parsing of the terminology. Like, what words did he use? What did they mean? Um, do you even bother doing that with Trump, or do you think the foreign policy be right? So, so one example is he um, he kept referring to Ukraine as the Ukraine, which is not <laughs> yes. sort of the uh, preferred terminology, especially in his not the that preferred sort of... nomenclature, man. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and like. It, But at least he didn't call
3: Argentina the Argentine, (laughs) which is the old British name for
2: it. But is is that just him... he doesn't understand the ramifications of the president of Taiwan or on Taiwan or whatever else. And like, he's just saying things or is it because it's a prepared speech, we should be reading into things like, well, he also didn't mention, mention Russian attacks on sovereignty and he used the terminology of the Ukraine. Maybe, you know, right. Are, are people, it's an, is there any point in trying to parse that out on that level? Or are we just at, on a totally different place with this president? So I wouldn't, par- I think it's worth parsing a bit. Um,
0: Because it was a deliberately drafted speech and perhaps it's it's worth understanding that this is Stephen Miller's big chance to finally lay out that Trumpian what did he call it principled realism that he's been bullshitting about for months if this is it you know ain't a lot of there there I'm sorry Stephen. Um, so it's worth parsing in that sense, but I don't think you can parse it too closely, partly because we know this is a president who's pretty careless with his words. But wh- what I do think is worth parsing is what was mentioned and what wasn't mentioned. Russia's violation of American sovereignty and interfering with our elections was not mentioned. Venezuela, oddly, was mentioned. Right. So, you know, um, autocracies were mentioned, but human rights were not mentioned. National sovereignty was mentioned. International norms and laws were not mentioned. So in that sense, I do think it's
2: worth parsing.
1: You're actually helping me kind of reconcile a conflict that I found at the very core of the speech, I which was... I find
2: good for that, Just reconciling you know, <laughs> my interests. I mean, on the one
1: hand, he's saying that we're going to put America first and all countries should put their sovereign interests first so everyone is in it for themselves. And at the same time, he's calling for international unity and consensus and coalition around great problems of the moment, including Iran, including North Korea. So you kind of can't have it both ways. But it makes me wonder if what this speech really is more of is not so much a policy vision as much as a list of the things that both aggravate interest, concern, and inspire Donald Trump. and that that's (laughs)
0: that's a really good interpretation. Right, and that he can hold these conflicts. Right, and he can hold
1: those contradictory impulses in his hands the way he does many of them, and that that's maybe the way to look at this. But I
3: also think, to go back to the, the... earlier question. I think there's a huge discount that everybody puts on Trump's words. And the discount, it works something like this. If you're offended enough by them, you reserve the right to write or say or feel some outraged response, like he said blank, and that really upsets me because of X, right? And that's sort of the way you would respond to a normal president. But if you're anything less than – but you also reserve the right to ignore it and say he's just a nut and so I don't really care if he says that. And that's not the way we react to a normal president. And then anything short of something like that, we all just discount as noise um, so that there's all kinds of things that Trump says or tweets – every day that you simply don't have time even to process. And so you don't. And that becomes um, a just a discounted, like, we also know the president goes to the bathroom, but we don't figure that into our evaluation of him. And Trump, to a certain extent, a lot of things he says is, I respond to the way I sort of dimly aware that he eats and he probably sleeps and there are bodily functions, and he says certain things, and I ignore it. Um, yeah, but I, mean, I always reserve the right to not ignore it, and and I think that's sort of the weird position that he puts us in every day. And and the General Assembly speech is a example of that. That's a little bit more outward directed.
0: Well, to me, that what's interesting is that I I would agree with you that I think that's. The approach that a lot of people, including in the media and in the sort of analytical community and commentary, that's the approach a lot of people have come to take, um, is that there's a lot of stuff that they just choose to ignore. I think what's useful about this speech this week and more broadly, the sort of the set of activities in which he's engaged uh, in New York is that, you know, it is an indicator of where the president and his team are investing time. Um, this speech w- took time in drafting. He apparently put his own mark on it, including the Rocket Man line. And so you do you do take it a little more seriously than you take his tweet about the Emmys. What does
3: Elton John think of the whole Rocket Man I don't thing? know that
2: he's weighed he in. He hasn't yet. weighed in. But
0: The, the Economist has weighed in to note that they called Kim Jong-un's father Rocket Man back in the mid-2000s. So they're upset so about their intellectual property here. Um, so, no, I, I think it's worth taking this a little more seriously than we take the average presidential communication. Um, but that said, I think a lot of the reaction yesterday was this sort of overheated response to the overheated rhetoric on North Korea and not looking... More broadly, at the worldview, which I I think Shane just laid out really wonderfully.
2: I mean, one thing that was so interesting that really appeared to captivate people, at least like on Twitter, were these pictures of John Kelly with sort of like his hands in his head, uh, <laughs> his head in his hands. We all feel like that. Uh, right? This is sort of like again, you know, John Kelly is all of us. And of do we reaction. know that was
1: when he when Trump was well, speaking? Well, so uh,
2: somebody put up the times timestamps that it was whatever Trump said. You know, called North Korea a band of criminals, this and that. And my response was, well, he I don't think he was deviating from the teleprompter all that much. And like to me, you know. John John Kelly just looks like someone who is really, really tired. The guy probably works just unbelievable hours and and, rubs his eyes a lot. But it was just so interesting seeing sort of the need of people to kind of project this. Anguish and John Kelly there for all of us. This was just like, guys, John Kelly just like he needs a nap. Like this right. is he's, he's a got Gaw a tough star. job. Right. All I mean, <laughs> like he's a four star general. He would never show weakness. Like what? Well, he's rubbing his eyes. I don't. I. I just thought it was yeah. fascinating how much that like sort of captivated people. It's interest. like they
0: really want John Kelly to feel bad about what the president is doing and they don't want to let john kelly take responsibility for being the chief of staff <laughs> right. to president trump right.
2: but he should wait for a speech like that where it is clearly prepared and it's off a teleprompter he should take responsibility for that it's should. not like he
1: didn't know what the president was going to say exactly. so we maybe shouldn't exactly. read too much into the uh, the eye rolling or rubbing as it were um Let's go from a four-star general to a three-star general.
2: That, <laughs> Not that's to a rub, rub it in or like <laughs> Who also needs a nap. <laughs>
1: oh, Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn, who I joked before the show that I'm going to start calling the Charo of the Trump administration <laughs> because he just pops up in the most interesting places. Oh, this week, Mike Flynn is back uh, in the yeah, role I, of the heiress. Right, and
0: always <laughs> with such drama and flair.
1: Right? Come on. He would appreciate the analogy. And he, he tweeted he did. He did tweet he did about his, his legal defense to his Flinnersons project. Um, so we reported a story in the journal. Um, uh, that has n- nothing obviously to do with Russia. There's some tangential links to it, but the long and short of it is that Mike Flynn worked as a consultant on this deal advising a consortium of companies who wanted to build nuclear facilities in the Middle East and then continued to work on this while he was in the White House as the National Security Advisor. Um, it, it is not at all clear that he was being paid for that work, we should say. He says that he dissolved his company, Flynn Intel Group, in December of 2016, but then picked up this project, made it a point of meetings of National Security Council staffers uh, and continued staying in contact with one NSC senior staffer responsible for Middle East issues after Flynn was fired. And worked on setting up meetings, including with Gary Cohn, the National Economic Advisor, and Tom Barrack, who is a senior advisor, outside advisor to the president, and was instrumental in helping set the agenda for the Trump administration's trip to Saudi Arabia, which was one of the parties involved in the project. So, I mean, the, the, the sort of the conflict of interest red flags go up all over the place with this. I mean, and it raised one question for me that keeps coming. I I I want to get your guys' reaction to the story, but particularly I will say the thing that people ask me all the time when it comes with Mike Flynn is, what was he thinking? Like these are not hard calls. This is not a naive person. This is someone who has served at very senior levels and very sensitive levels. What was he thinking when he did these things? Can I
2: ask a potentially incredibly stupid threshold question? Which is, do the Saudis really have a need for nuclear power plants? Is this... Like, this was my first thought of, really? He's like... Gulf states are okay, really so looking for nuclear power? It's, it's an
0: interesting question, actually. First of all, I, I think Jordan and Egypt were the ones who, you know, who are okay. primarily interested in this. But yes, the Gulf states actually are looking for alternative ways of generating electricity because uh, they want to make as much of their oil as possible available to the world market domestic consumption is huge and growing really fast in these countries because they subsidize the fuel and it's super cheap. Um, and so people run their air conditioners all day when they're not home and things like that. And, and so, yeah, they actually want to stop using their oil for domestic consumption and sell it for profit.
3: All right. Qu- asked and answered. So my question about this is, I, I actually think it does have a lot to do with Russia and uh it's because but not Russia be- was involved at one point in the Right plan, no no but it's not so because of direct Russian involvement yeah, yeah. in the deal it's because this mode of behavior in answer to Shane's question looks like nothing so much as the self-enrichment of uh oligarchs and uh people around regimes like Putin's and I you know I think it's kind of interesting that these uh, these guys have this weird solicitude for for Putin's regime and they get into government and they behave exactly like yeah. um, like these, uh, you know, sort of people uh, around Putin who are all lining their pockets. Um, uh, I, I I mean, I was stunned by this story. I, I think it's. Um, You know, if you look at the scope and range of Flynn's activities in this period uh, during the campaign, during the transition, and up to and including his uh, brief and ill starred period in government, it really is a remarkable uh, uh, pattern of uh, bizarre uh, self enrichment, self dealing -dealing kind of activities. And you know, I don't believe in ascribing labels associated with criminality to people who haven't been charged. Uh, but the word that comes to mind is graft, and and it's it's a it's a very strange uh, pattern of activity for somebody of his background, and uh, as you say, of somebody of his sophistication.
2: Yeah. No. I'm, I mean. I think, yeah, graft corruption, you know, this sort of takes me back to some of the issues we talked about in the early transition period. I mean, you know, I'd written an article on Lawfare about sort of how national ethics rules are national security rules. And I think this is a really good illustration of that. You know, Flynn was reportedly warned by White House Ethics Council, you may not work on these projects. If you worked on something prior to joining the administration, it's not proper or appropriate for you to continue to work on this within the White House. Um, and, and that he just sort of, you know, ignored that and, and kept... Doing it anyway, one that speaks a lot to sort of the way the ethics rules and tone are set at the top, right? So if the Trump family doesn't adhere to their own ethics to the to, the, to existing ethics rules, why should anybody else? Yeah, you know, but this really does start to get into the area in which that kind of corruption can have real consequences for national security, and that's because you know we like in lawfare we talk about hard national security choices, and that's because a lot of times it's really close calls, and a lot of times it's really difficult after the fact to look back on a series of decisions understand how they're interrelated, understand what the genuine motivations are, you have to take a lot of what the government does sort of on faith because you don't have all the information they have and and because it's, it's more sort of close calls than clear choices. And whenever you have now uh, inserted into that sort of decision-making proje- uh, process, you know, large financial stakes and personal financial stakes, either money that you made before and sort of promises you need to deliver on that are also linked to your future uh, sort of uh, financial fortunes, it muddies up and sort of murks up that decision making process in a way that you then have to look at All of sort of the recommendations we know that Flynn did this with um, with regards to sort of Turkey and extraditing Gulen. You you really do have to look at everything he gave advice to, everything the United States did on his council in that period, and say, did we do that because it was in the best interest of the United States, America first? Somebody might say, you know, or or did we do it because it was going to help Mike Flynn's you know personal or business position?
0: Can I I just want to pick up on one point you made, which is you know, what it says about the way in which ethics obligations were messaged and enforced from the top in the White House down, because part of what I was floored by about this was not just what Flynn did during the transition or once he got into office on this question, but then after he left office, continuing to reach out to government officials uh, about this stuff. And, you know, when you sign these ethics undertakings letters, when you join an administration, you make specific commitments. And there is a very clear, these aren't like long pages long documents. These are very, very simple. And you are frozen out from even having conversations with people for a discrete period of time. The Obama administration voluntarily doubled the statutory length of time for our officials above a, a certain level. But even if The Trump administration didn't do that. And I don't know offhand what time period they may have voluntarily set. Uh, The statutory is two years. So he shouldn't have even been able to get on the phone with Gary Cohn.
1: Yeah. And And, was doing this with his subordinates, too, on the NSC staff.
0: Right. And so not only did he do it and violate his own commitments, but those people should have reported it up the chain. And they apparently didn't.
3: So, you know, the part that they didn't say when they said drain the swamp was that they drained the swamp in order to drink it. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously.
1: (laughs) Well, well, just to close this out, it does create um, a new set of potential legal vulnerabilities for Mike Flynn. And when we're talking about the strategy of squeezing people to find out what else they know.
3: Not not to mention (laughs) when you're talking about the sudden need on the part of Mike Flynn for a legal defense fund. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to go first?
3: Well, I was uh, upset this week to see uh, the New York Times' uh, story about uh, overhearing uh, Ty Cobb and John Dowd talking uh, about legal strategy and their gripes in a sidewalk cafe. Uh Because uh, not merely is it an egregious ethical lapse on the part of the president's lawyers, for which uh, one would hope that they would both uh, have bar complaints against them. Uh, But Am I
2: not supposed to be talking about our legal issues? Oh, we always do. I'm I'm okay, though. But look.
3: Susan, you're the lawyer, but I'm the client, and, and I get to waive that. So you know, when That's when true. we have our public conversations about all sorts of lawfare-sensitive legal mm-hmm. matters, mm-hmm. just so that rational security knows I've waived the privilege mm-hmm. for that. We'll purpose. podcast
2: them in the future. Yeah,
3: we'll we'll do them on podcasts. But I was upset by this story because a few days before. Uh, uh, Mr. Vogel uh, was fortunate enough to be sitting next to uh, these two gentlemen. I, too, uh, found myself at a sidewalk cafe with one Ty Cobb, whose mustache does, I'm afraid, make him somewhat recognizable. And
0: Poor guy's not going to be able to get a cup of coffee anywhere in this city. Well, whose
3: fault is that? <laughs> um, and so I uh, wanted to... Uh, uh, talk to him, uh, and unfortunately, he was on the phone the whole time. So I snapped a few pictures of him, which will be up on our show page. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, it's because I'm a bad reporter at heart, it never occurred to me to sit next to him and start taking notes. <laughs> he was sitting inside the Pan Quotidien, and, uh, and I was sitting in the outdoor part, and I was kind of watching him through the window. And, Dude, uh,
0: your journalistic instincts have atrophied. I, 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 you this is why know, they
1: defrocked you.
3: Um, <laughs> you know, he was sitting there. He was on his phone. I was going to go talk to him uh, as soon as he got off the phone, but he never did. And uh, so that is why the New York Times has this blockbuster instead of <laughs> lawfare. <laughs> ah.
0: But you only would have been uh, able to hear his half of the phone conversation. But who
3: knows maybe he was maybe he was talking about all the document production that he wants yeah, to do and yeah. that was John Dowd on the other and that <laughs> was, you know, Don McGann on the other end of the phone and you know there was there was a giant scoop there and I missed it. Yeah. All I wow. got was the a few photographs and I didn't get to ask him whether he was on drugs and <laughs> he didn't ask me whether I was on drugs. To uh, your
1: credit, by the way, you would have recognized John Dowd had you seen him, which apparently, according to Ken Vogel, who told the Daily he did not recognize and it, had to send a picture back to the newsroom, and his colleagues said basically it's the president's lawyer. Yeah. So <laughs> that you know he I did recognize Tycos.
3: I would have recognized uh John Dowd, but I'm not sure I would have had the presence of mind to go to sit to go next go to them and start taking. Doorstep notes. him, table yeah.
1: side him as it were. Yeah. So Um Susan, you want to go next?
2: Uh, Yes, I have a brief object lesson. My object lesson is The Fly American Act. Um, so the Fly American Act is a part of the like federal be a Fly acquisition American? No, the, the one
0: forces you onto U.S. carriers when you fly abroad on U.S. business.
2: Exactly. See, Tammy knows it chapter and verse because I've every federal it. employee who has <laughs> ever had to travel, particularly international, has had to suffer the pains of the Fly American Act, the inconvenience, the downright indignities of it. Um, and so I'm using it as my object lessons because Secretaries Price, Pruitt, and Mnuchin, um, who are are using government aircraft all over the United States right and left um, to avoid what appears to be I don't even know that you can call it an inconvenience like just just because they can do it. Um, I just I just want to let them know that their fellow civil servants um, are busy abiding by the world's worst law as they are chartering $25,000 aircraft to go from Washington DC to Philadelphia.
1: But hey, it's an American plane. <laughs> 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 Only fools fly commercial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tamara? Oh,
0: well, I love our, <laughs> our listeners. And, um, and because I, I want to understand you better. I want to understand why on earth you waste an hour with us every week, although I thank you for doing so. So I put up a little poll on Twitter, a rational security poll. I asked, where do you listen to rational security? Um, It's got another 10 hours or so before Twitter shuts it down. So please go and vote. It's in my timeline. What Um, are the options? So I gave a few. They're pretty obvious practical options, although I'm fascinated by the differential results so far. Um, Commuting to or from work. Do you listen while you're working out? Do you listen while you're doing laundry or dishes or other kind of housework? Or... Do you listen with reverence in front of your rational security shrine? Which I know many of you have at home because so far an impressive one-fifth of our listeners have selected that option. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tempted to ask you to tweet me photos of your rational security shrine. Maybe we'll do that You too can be an object lesson. (laughs) You too can be an object lesson. But I do want to encourage you all to take the poll. Um, I may ask you some other questions just so I can get a – Better handle on uh, on what the podcast means to you. Um, and also, I want to give a special shout out to listener Sean Abernathy, who listens while commuting, but also, he says, whilst lovingly maintaining my canon.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's so nice. He has a baby canon, too. Um, so my object this week is easily the dumbest primetime gag I have seen in years, you may have watched the... I only watched the opening of the Emmys because I'll just catch the rest later and the, the articles and the wrap-ups. But I did see it long enough <clears throat> to see one Sean Spicer uh, wheeled out uh, Melissa McCarthy style on his podium so uh, to make a joke about... Size of the audience watching the Emmys, obviously a reference to um, his first appearance as press secretary.
0: Can we comment on the size of his shamelessness, Aye. which appears to be immeasurable?
1: Yeah. the uh, I, I, As a reporter, I was offended. Uh, Sean's, this, of course, references back to when Sean, on January 20th, uh, call, summoned the White House press corps to the press room to berate them over the coverage of the inaugural crowd size and pointing out the fact that the crowd size for Obama's inauguration was bigger than Trump's, and that set the tone. I think it's fair to say for, in my mind, and many, many people I know who cover the White House, for the White House press office's relationship with the press and facts, and in particular, Sean Spicer's. Um, And I'm not trying to make it personal. It's just a thing that happened. And uh, yeah, it's too soon. It's too soon to make jokes about it. And I was surprised by the fact that that audience in particular of both people in Hollywood and in the television industry were using that occasion to make a joke out of it. And it seemed like it fell flat in the room a little bit. There were polite titters and then there was a lot of people who seemed kind of aghast.
2: Yeah, no, I, I like... Aghast sounds about right to me. Yeah,
1: but. yeah, So
2: Just the ha-ha, I lied to you, we all lie to you. Now yeah. it's a big joke. Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. just the lack of solidarity among the media. That sort
1: of did you think it was because like, there were some people saying I'll oh, give him a break it's funny yeah
2: no, like, I, I' more mean sort of like there F isn't um, and uh, like this is not original commentary but but you know this sort of notion of of White House reporters not standing up for one another one of their sort of egregious practices in in the White House briefing room and then sort of this larger sense of you know allowing somebody who is mm-hmm. making a mockery of sort of the practice of journalism to, you know, in a broader sort of context of, of honoring the media, including honoring news media, um, you know, to allow him to sort of uh, make light of that and make a joke of it is, you know, there, there's just something sort of, I don't know, not, uh, yeah. I don't know. And also Rob about Melissa it.
1: McCarthy of the opportunity to do her wonderful act on primetime and the Emmys. But that's okay. All right. Not funny, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you no ill will, but not funny.
0: Not funny. Go
1: away. All right. Or hang around, just don't make that joke again. Um, that brings us to the end of the podcast. <laughs> Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall. You can find our show page with our archive at Spaghetti on the Wall Productions com. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at R A T L Security and take our survey and tweet us pictures of your shrine. That just, that, I really want to see this. Oh, One by the way, fifth?
3: by the way, I have a uh, review, an, an honest review of a non. Uh, a non-podcast sponsor product. Oh, do you? Yeah. Um, So, you know, because none of these companies sponsor uh, Rational Security, we can actually tell you the truth about them. And this week I've had some experience with Stamps.com and because of all the baby Canon pins that we've been sending out to people. So here's my honest assessment of Stamps.com. Reasonably pretty good product. Um, The software is buggy. And we've been having trouble getting it to interface with a label printer. Uh, and so, you know, you might actually – Either fix the bugs or sponsor the podcast. Or sponsor right. us on the website. If we wants play to play. shut up about it, um, – we'll, we'll, well, now you, they can you, never sponsor us. You can sponsor us. the <laughs> podcast. But, um <laughs> you know – I, honestly, you might save time by standing in line at the post office, particularly <laughs> if the number of pod, the number of packages is small. For volume <laughs> stuff, it's definitely pretty convenient. Stamps.com.
1: Eh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's a slogan for you.
1: Our audio engineer this week is the long suffering Matthew Kahn. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia. Our show was music performed this week by. See if you get it, Mike Flynn and Enigma. Uh, Do you get it? Do you get where I'm going? Return to Innocence. Um, oh, yeah, okay. you remember that. Yeah, <laughs> Return to Flinnison. That's a
0: deep cut.
1: That's deep, <laughs> not as deep as those legal bills. <laughs> of course, our song music is performed by Sophia, by the long suffering Sophia, Sophia Anne. Anne. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who loves songs played backwards, just like returned innocence. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Mark and Wittis and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.
2: Bye-bye.